Hey, my name is Katie Bulmer. I was your typical heartbroken and hungover sorority girl who looked for love in boys, Bacardi, and did I mention boys? After the breakup that broke me, I met the only man who can truly fulfill me. His name is Jesus. Shortly after that, I met my husband, the best example I have met of Jesus on this earth. Today, I have never been more sure I am right where I'm supposed to be on a mission to help today's young women find their life calling, stop dating dirtbags, and basically just be who I needed when I was younger. I've been called a big sis, an adopted mom, or my favorite title, a cool aunt. But however you think of me, get ready to be challenged and encouraged. This is the Truth For Your 20s podcast. Hello, my name is Katie and welcome to the Truth For Your 20s podcast. Today I have with me my new friend, Amy. Amy is really cool. (laughs) But on paper, she is a speaker, a writer, a Bible teacher, the author of several Bible studies. She's been featured on all kinds of incredible outlets that you've probably heard of. And she is just relatable and I love what she's bringing to the table and I'm excited for you to meet her today. So hello, welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. I have never been introduced for a podcast by somebody saying that I'm really cool. So I'm going to hold on to that one. (laughs) I think you're cool. I heard your name come up at a Bible study and how you just unpack so many things in a relatable way in a... I'm not even sure the word word I'm looking for, but you unpack things well. And when your name came across my email, I was like, heck yes, I'd love to have her on the podcast. (laughs) That's so fun. Well, thanks so much for having me. I love what you're doing with this podcast. I think that, you know, young women in particular, I wish that I had more people pouring into my life when I was that age. And so I love that you have a heart for young women who want to follow the Lord, who want to know what it means to grow spiritually or seek God for the first time, what it can look like to walk in wisdom. So I love what you're doing. And I'm thankful to be a part of it. Yay. Okay. So for those who may not know who you are, tell us a little background. Who is Amy? And then we'll talk about what you're doing now. That's great. Well, I wear kind of a lot of hats. So what most people probably know, like if I was to post my bio online, it's a lot of the things that you said. I'm a Bible teacher. I'm an author. I have a deep, deep passion for verse by verse Bible study. I do not think studying the Bible should be boring because the Bible itself is not boring. And so I love seeing the truth of God's word from the Old Testament and New Testament come to life as we study it in depth and intentionally. So I teach several Bible studies. I have a Bible study community of members that I lead verse by verse through different books of the Bible. So that is a real joy for me. I speak. I do a lot of theological training. I teach women how to study the Bible. Um, kind of coming out of my Bible. I went to Bible school for college and then I went to seminary afterwards. And just coming out of those days, I learned so much. I picked up so many tools. Basically, I went through this formal education process that basically filled my toolbox with tools to study the Bible. And I love opening that toolbox and just saying, you can use these tools too. So that's a big part of what my life looks like. I also run a small business called Tiny Theologians, which is teaching kids all about God's word and all about theology, who he is. So that's sort of my online bio. That's like my online presence and that sort of thing. But my daily life is much more um, ordinary than that. I'm a mom to a little 18-month-old. My husband and I are church planters in Greenville, North Carolina. And so my day-to-day life is actually spent pouring into the local church, pouring into our daughter, packaging orders for tiny theologians in my garage. So like it's 
you know, it's easy to look at people online and be like, oh my goodness, they do so many things. But the truth is, is all of us are living ordinary daily lives and we all have to walk out our faith in that context. So my challenge and one of the things that God has called me to and that I really enjoy doing is to see how each of us as women can incorporate the calling of God in our lives to be disciples and make disciples, to think theologically, to grow as theologians, how that can be a part of our ordinary daily lives, whether we're sitting in a classroom, whether we're sitting behind a desk, whether we're chasing around a toddler, any of these things, there's a way for us to know and love God in those things. So that is a part of the calling that God's placed on my life. I love all of it. I think it's super relatable and just real. One thing I wrote down when you were talking is I don't think the studying the Bible should be boring because the Bible's not boring, but you'd have a hard time convincing some people. So I'd love for you to unpack that some more. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of times when people say, I'm going to say this really kindly because I know some people listening are probably guilty of saying the Bible's boring. I have been guilty of saying it. So I don't say this with any holier than thou kind of judgment. But a lot of times when we think the Bible is boring, at least this was the case for me, we have not read our whole Bible. Because if you get into some of the Old Testament and you haven't read the Old Testament before, you will be shocked by some of the things that you find there, some of the narratives that you find there. Just for example, if you stumble upon, if you're reading your New Testament and you kind of open the book of Matthew, the chapter that you want to skip more than any other chapter is chapter one, because it's the genealogy. So it opens, and it's like that list of begat, 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 so-and-so, begat, so-and-so, begat, so-and-so. It's this like family tree kind of lingo. And you're like, I don't know these names. And I'm just going to move on to chapter two when Jesus is born, because that actually feels like it means something to me for my own personal life. Well, if we look up some of those stories, if we look up some of the characters that are listed in chapter one, we're actually going to like be shocked to realize the kind of stories that are included in that one little chapter. I mean, we've got a woman like Bathsheba who was married to a man in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And one day while her husband is out fighting a war, she is summoned to the king's palace because he saw her bathing on the rooftop and he wanted her. And so he brings her to the palace. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. When she writes to the king and tells him that she is pregnant, and her husband's clearly away. He like bribes the husband to come back and try to get tries to get him to sleep with his wife, but he won't do it because there are soldiers on the front line. And so in nobility, he will not go home. He sleeps in the town square, goes back to the army. And so the king has him killed. Like that's Bathsheba's story. And the next child, that child that Bathsheba bore is the next child in the family line of Jesus Christ. And there's another woman named Rahab. She is a prostitute. She is not a part of the nation of Israel. She lives in a wall in a city that Israel is about to conquer. And she lives in the wall because, um, hello, it's the best place for business when you're a prostitute. And so she lives in the city wall. So she catches travelers going in and out of the city. Well, one day these two travelers come and they're actually spies. And so they don't sleep with her, but she like hides them from the government officials that are looking for them because they're spying out the land, thinking about how they can destroy it, creating this military strategy. She hides them and they say, okay, because you've done this for us, we are going to spare you and your family if you hang this rope out your window when our nation, when our military comes to conquer it. And so she does it. Her name is Rahab. She is saved. The whole city is destroyed. She is saved. She's brought into the nation of Israel. And guess what? She's like one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. 
So here, that's just two examples, but there's this entire chapter full of names that we would just skip over. But goodness, think about everything that that tells us about who God is. Like in his nature, in his character, he gets to write his family story. He's the one who promised the Messiah, right? Jesus could have come any which way he wanted to. And God saw it fit that these women would be included in the story of Jesus coming into the world. Like God did not think a prostitute soils my family line. A woman who was coerced into sleeping with the king soils my family line. Like God thought it was the best case scenario to include these women in his family, despite the tragedy that they endured because of sinfulness and brokenness in the world. I mean, that's just exciting. Like you can't, we write literature that's this exciting. Like we write literature with stories that are as twisty and turny as this. But then we open our Bibles and we think, ugh, this list of names, like boo, like move on to something else. I'd rather watch Netflix or scroll my phone. But if we look closely at God's word, we're actually going to find that it's fascinating, that it's interesting. There are stories that we don't tell in Sunday school because they're that racy. Like there are racy stories in the Old Testament. And all of a sudden we're like, God thought it was good to include these in the Bible. And so I think if we think the Bible is boring, we just haven't gotten to know it enough. Another quick example is I love studying the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Here we've got chapters and chapters, like six chapters in the book of Exodus. They're all about one part of the tabernacle, tabernacle's construction. So it's like, use these co- these colored cords, and these are the measurements for this room. And you're like, blah, blah, blah. Like, could this move any slower? It's like reading dis- like blueprints being described to you. But actually, when you look at those elements, you realize God is actually building something in the tabernacle that allows his people to worship him in a way and have proximity to his presence in a way they haven't had since the Garden of Eden. So he's putting all these garden symbols. He's putting all these sacrificial symbols. He's building them into the very framework to remind his people who he is and what it means to be in his presence. I mean, that's just fascinating. It's just so interesting. So whether you're an engineer or whether you're an interior decorator, you're going to find it fascinating. You're going to find it so interesting. So I do think the Bible is so, so interesting. There's a reason it's been studied more than any book in the entire world, in the entire course of human history, and we're still not tired of it. Like we still haven't plumbed its depth. So I think for the person who thinks it's boring, like I once did, I would just challenge us. We just got to keep reading it because there is some really fascinating stuff in there. Okay, people on the other side of these earbuds, don't you know why I wanted to have you on this podcast? (laughs) That was in itself like so fun and so exciting. And I love it that you mentioned Rahab. So funny, quick story. When I I did Disciple Now, I think my, my, me and my husband were dating at the time. And so we were like teaching a bunch of middle schoolers. You know, the Disciple Now is common in a bunch of churches. They have this weekend of like teaching kids about the Bible. Anyway, so I had this group of girls and we kind of talked about like the lineage of Jesus. And we talked about Rahab. And so funny, like the next Sunday when they're like, what did you learn at Disciple Now? All the girls said, I didn't know that in Jesus's line was a prostitute. Like <laughs> That was their takeaway. I'm like, um, I mean, I guess that's good. We can well spend. (laughs) That's really great. But it is really great because those girls are going to go on and who knows what their stories are going to include. Like a lot of us have past that include either sexual sin of some kind, or we have some kind of trauma, or we have some kind of area of shame in our lives. We have a past that we don't quite want to face. And those girls may always remember Rahab and think, oh my goodness, if Jesus including her in his very family, then there's a place for me in God's family too. Because the language that Matthew 1 uses about including each of these people in the family tree of Christ is that they've been grafted in. So sort of like a branch that a farmer cuts and they graft in a new branch. That is the language that's 
used there. It's actually like being engrafted into the very structure of the family tree of Christ. And so the family tree would not have happened without these people. Like it would not have happened. Like it's now an, a part of the integrity of Jesus's family line. These people are hallmark characters in the family tree of Jesus. And that's the same language that Paul picks up in Romans. He says, just like you and I have been as Gentiles, as people who are not Israelites, we were not Jewish in our faith. We've been grafted in through Jesus. Like that's the same language. And so those girls may someday need to remember Rahab, like despite whatever their past holds or whatever their stories look like, however they read, they need to know there's a place for them in the family of God. And by knowing that Rahab had a place, a lot of us feel much more confident about approaching God because gosh, if there's a place for her, we know that we can approach God with confidence through Christ. Absolutely. Shout out to Rahab. Shout out to Rahab. (laughs) Shout out. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. And, you know, I always think about this, this nameless woman, so to speak, in the city, you know, didn't have, probably couldn't buy property, wasn't married. And in that, in that stage, so much, um, just looked down upon, you know, by most of the people she walked past in the lineage of Jesus. Like, (laughs) again, just pointing that out, it's crazy. But the reason we're talking about her so many years later is because she was part of that story. And I love that so much. That's right. That's right. And Rahab's faith actually teaches us something about what it means to follow God, because it just basically said, the text basically says like she believed, she had heard rumors that Israel had a God who did stuff. Like, it's basically like she, these spies come to her and she's like, I've heard the rumors about your God and I believe that they are true. So when these spies who she doesn't know, like they just came in, you know, how many men have slept in her apartment overnight? Like she doesn't know them. And she probably has learned pretty well not to trust a lot of men who just come and spend the night in the city wall, right? But these men come in and she says, I've heard the rumors. I believe that they are true. And they make her a promise that they will spare her if she, you know, hangs this cord and she stays in her apartment when they come to the city that they will spare her. And she believes them. And so that is such simple faith. Like that is like, I've heard and I choose to believe. And she was, I mean, her whole story flows from that really simple faith. Like she didn't, they weren't like, jump this high, show me your spirituality, show me that you're fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, she was just brought in by simple faith. That tells us something about what it means to follow Christ even today. Your passion for all this is infectious. I feel like you could talk about, well, you kind of did the most obscure verses of the Bible that most people (laughs) skip past and their eyes go cross and you like brought it to life and maybe you want to go read it five times. But you said you didn't start that way. You used to think the Bible was boring. So tell me about how that changed for you. Well, a big part of it was going to Bible school for me. Like that was the pivotal moment. For me, it took going to Bible school to really get to know my Bible. I remember well, sitting- people go to Bible school and don't have this passion. That's true. Now, a lot. Of, I do think, I'll say something about that in one second. Okay. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell about my pivot, but then I'll also tell share about why I think that that can happen because it actually has to do with a, my big passion project right now that's in front of me. But what happened in my own heart and life is that as I got to know the Bible, I remember sitting in Bible class and thinking, I know these Bible stories. Like I was sitting with classmates who came to faith in high school, late high school. And so they were like learning stuff for the very first time. And I remember thinking, I know all this stuff. But as you, first of all, I realized there's a lot about the Bible. I just did not know like a lot of stories that goodness that there wasn't a flannel graph for that in Sunday school when I was growing up. I mean, talk about like Lot and his daughters, like talk about... Noah and his daughters. I mean, there's some scandalous stories in the Old Testament. And I remember thinking, oh, I didn't, there are things that I didn't know about the Bible. And it made me really curious, but also then sitting in class next to people who came to faith later in life. I mean, 
watching them find so much amazement in hearing these stories for the first time reminded me it really is amazing. Like even if I've heard the story of Christ's birth, you know, a hundred times, I can hear it again because it really is life-changing. Like I think sometimes we read our Bibles and we think that the purpose of reading it is to enhance our spirituality and it's a discipline that we employ because it pleases God. Okay, so those things can all be true. When we study God's word, it does please him. It is a discipline at times. It does form and shape us spiritually. But a lot of times we forget that it's like a true story. Like it's a true story. These things happened. And that's why it's so wild. Like it's so wild that God existed as a three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But then the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became man forever. Like we follow him through his whole life. And we're like, yeah, he's still human. Yeah, he's still human. And then we watch him at the ascension after he's died and risen again. He takes his body back into heaven. It's not like he's like, okay, well, now I'm done with the body. I'm not going to return to my spiritual form. It's like, wait a second. These are like incredible things that are really happening. Like Jesus really rose from the dead. Jesus really ascended into heaven. So sometimes we read it like it's just a spiritual book when it's really a book of history, a book of poetry, a book of wisdom, and it really is all real. And it really does change lives. So I think one of the reasons, to your second point, that a lot of people come out of Bible school and seminary without a deep passion for the things of God is often because we like to, in the church, kind of pin ourselves in one of two categories. Like we think of ourselves as theological people. So intellectual, we like to think on the things of God. We like to study. We like to read. We like the life of the intellect. Or we think of ourselves as worshipers, people with deep hearts and deep affections for God. So instead of liking to read like the thinkers do, we like to go to worship nights and like listen to worship music and lift our hands. And we like the emotional aspect of connecting with God by the Spirit. And both of these things are good things. But the problem that we're encountering in this moment in church history, in our era, in our part of the world, is that we see a really stark dichotomy between the two. People are either thinkers or they're feelers. They're either theologians or they're worshipers. But the reality is that theology, knowing who God is, was always meant to drive us into worship. When theology, theology is really just the knowledge of God. It's just who knowing who God is and pursuing knowing God more. When we don't follow that with worship, when the outcome of that isn't worship, what happens is we fill our minds with all of this these factoids, all this information about God. And we get puffed up because that information was meant to lead us somewhere. But instead, we're sort of like theologically constipated, for lack of a better word. Like it has nowhere to go. And so we just get big heads. We get prideful. We Our affections run cold for God because we just know all this stuff. And our hearts aren't actually changed. And the problem when we are just worshipers, without theology playing into our worship, is we become people who always have to seek after the next spiritual high. We have to always seek after the next experience of worship because really it's knowledge of God that is going to sustain our worship. So one of the big problems, I think, is that people go to Bible school, they get all of this information, but their hearts aren't actually changed because it's not actually playing itself out in the life of worship. When instead, this is my big passion project right now, is helping believers see that theology, when we know who God is, is actually going to fill and fuel and shape our worship. And the two, when married, like they sing like two harmonies. They just play together in an inexplainable way 
but a way that is so foundational to what it means to be a Christian. So as we know who God is, we should always grow in loving Him more. And it's going to make our theology come to life. What we know about God is all of a sudden going to bloom into meaning and warm our hearts through. And we're going to find ourselves in awe of this God who we're learning more about. But also for the person who tends towards worship, as we study theology, it's actually good. we're going to find that our worship is sustained because it's sustained in the context of actually knowing the God that we're worshiping. So that's what my big passion project is right now. I have a book launching in just a few short days called Fix Your Eyes. And it's all about how our theology shapes our worship. So I think that's why we see people going to Bible school and seminary and graduating and thinking, I know a lot about God. Isn't that enough? Well, no, it's not. Because knowing, just like knowing a spouse or knowing a friend or knowing a roommate, like knowing facts about them is just not enough. Like that doesn't mean we know them. You know, if I went on the first date with my husband and I was like, hey, I'd love to get to know you. And he was like, great. Here's like my height, my weight, you know, my shoe size. Here's my IQ. I'd be like, "Mm, that doesn't make, (laughs) that's not what I meant, right? So just knowing a bunch of factoids about God actually don't shape our worship in and of its, like just if we leave it to that, it's not actually going to like fuel our relationship. But when we know who God is and we grow in affection for him, those two work in tandem so very well. If you like this podcast, you would definitely love checking out my website. katiebulmer.life is where I have all of the good stuff I offer on the internet world housed in one location. So the online dating quizzes where over 3,000 of you have made a dating plan It's on my website. I have my shop with Comfort Colors Tees and my book. By the way, use promo code TRUTH to get yourself 10% off there. All the information you need to book me as a speaker, the link to my first mini digital course all about making a dating plan, going into that further, and lots of other goodness. Also, my favorite things link, check on that tab because all of the promo codes and discounts that I mentioned here on the podcast will be there under my favorite things. At the beginning of quarantine craziness, that was my first big project to have a total website overhaul. It got a facelift. I'm pretty proud of the way it looks. So go check it out, katiebulmer.life. And thanks for stopping by. I love this. And I know you talk about in the book, something along the lines of like why every believer is called to be a theologian. And I want to unpack that because you kind of mentioned that, you know, the knowledge of the Bible and worship go hand in hand or theology and, and worship go hand in hand. And I think that's true. And I think that's beautiful. But I see so many times, oh, well, they need spiritual direction. So talk to the pastor, talk to Mm -hmm. this person, like I can't help you. And yeah, I think that you have a great point that we're all called to be theologians. So I love for you to unpack that. Yeah. And, you know, so I'm also a person in ministry. So I'm also the person, my husband and I are, at least in our church, that when people are like, hey, you should talk to the pastor, they're talking about my husband. Or when they say, hey, you should talk to somebody and they want to talk to a woman, it's me. So I say this as a person who is really passionate about, you know, being an available person in ministry for the people in our congregation. And there are times like, I don't want to downplay the times where like professional help is needed. Like I have benefited throughout my life from professional counseling and from getting advice from somebody who's specifically trained in an area that is so, so valuable. So we don't want to downplay that. But the reality is, is that a lot of times we relegate theologian to the same level of like a doctor or a physician or a professional counselor. 
we're so quick to say it's only for the pros. It's only for people who have graduated from seminary. And while not every single one of us should like bite off writing a, you know, theological textbook or something like that. Well, yeah, we should leave that to the people who, you know, are translating, you know, the books from the original languages. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, there's a reason N.T. Wright is writing the best books on Paul and on the Book of Romans, and, you know, these people who are scholars in their areas. There's a reason for that. But theology, by definition, is the knowledge of God, or when we apply it to our lives, the pursuit of knowing God. And when we boil it down to that kind of definition, like it is the responsibility. It's so clear to us. It's the responsibility of every single Christian to know the God who we profess to believe and who we say is our Savior. And so because of that, I think it's really, really important that each of us embrace our responsibility or our identity as a theologian, because otherwise what's going to happen is if we say, oh, I'm not a theologian, it actually doesn't change the fact that we already have a theology in place. We already have some belief system about who God is in place. The question is, is it biblical or not? Like so many of us believe things about God that may have just been passed down culturally or they were a part of our church upbringing, or something our grandma said to us for several years every Easter when we went to church with her. And they may be great, they may be biblical, but they may not be. And so when we say, oh, I'm not a theologian, it doesn't actually change the fact that we have a theology in place. We have a belief about who God is already established. But what happens when we say we're not theologians is we never take the time to question whether or not what we believe about God lines up with what God has said about himself in scripture. So to use the spouse or friend metaphor again, it's almost as if I say like, yeah, I know my husband Austin really, really well. And I start telling you things about him. And he's like, actually in the background going, wait a second. (laughs) I'm not wired that way. That's not how I operate in relationships. That's not how I function. And the truth is, is that God has told us who he is. He's told us what he is like. He's given everything that we need to know him and to worship him in his word. And so we do really well when we embrace the fact that we have a theology, that we are theologians, and then we check that against the word of God. And how we do that is just by reading the word. We just need to be students of the scripture, lifelong students of the scripture, not just that we can know a bunch about God, but that we can know him and grow in loving him as well. So to someone who might be like, you know, listening and want to grow, but maybe not know where to start. Uh, This is all kind of new to them. Do you have suggestions of kind of where the baby steps on how to start with this? Yeah, I think one of the best places to start is to start reading your New Testament and start reading in the book of Mark. I love the book of Mark because it tells us so much about Jesus's life and ministry. It's a great place to start. It tells us a lot about who God is, why Jesus came, that sort of thing. And so for the person who says, oh, I feel like I need to jump into the book of Romans. Romans is sort of a theological book and a great book. Don't get me wrong. But for somebody who's saying, this is actually a little intimidating to me. It's maybe my first time. Start with a book like that or start with a book like Philippians, which is a letter written in the New Testament that explains to new believers what it means to live as Christians. Now they have these new identities. They're no longer a part of the Jewish faith. They're a part of the Christian faith. They're no longer considered outsiders to the members of God if they were Gentiles. They're included in the family of God. And so Paul writes in this letter and says, what does it look like to live out your Christian faith? Well, isn't that the same question all of us are asking? What does it look like to live out our Christian faith? And so some of these letters are written in really practical ways that help us, you know, remember to pray. Like Paul tells them, rejoice in prayer, even when you're suffering. 
learn contentment, like these very practical things that apply to my life today. They apply to your life today. So start in one of those books. I think it's a great place to start. And then as you sort of find yourself not in your pace, you know, whether you read a chapter a day, whether you read half a chapter a day, whatever it is, once you find your pace through some of those, you know, New Testament books, then read Genesis. Genesis is a long book and it's the first book of the Bible. It's a long book in the Old Testament, but it's full of stories that point us to who God is and what he's been doing since we, before we even entered the scene, before, you know, before Jesus even came to earth, it just tells us so much of um, the foundational story of salvation from the very beginning, how humanity fell into sin and fell away from God and how God from the very beginning promised a savior. So those are the places I would start. And I think the best tool that we can take with us, um, my friend Melissa Kruger says this often, this is not original to me, but the best tool we can take with us for Bible study is not going to be something like knowing how to study the structure of a book or knowing the genre of the book or knowing the author of the book. The best tool we can take with us is our own curiosity. So just like you would read another book and think, oh, I wonder how that character is feeling, or I wonder if this relates to anything else in the story, take your curiosity with you into Bible study. Because as you have a question, scripture very likely wants to let that question lead you to another question, to another question. And that's how we get ourselves, how we find ourselves all the way like elbow deep in studying our Bibles, because we sort of let one thing lead to another. And all of a sudden, we're unpacking this little bitty phrase that kind of caught us up and caught our attention and made us ask the question. All of a sudden, we're looking at this little phrase and we're looking at each word and picking it apart and going, is that the same concept as what I've read? You know, what's happening in Mark? Is that the same concept as what's happening in Philippians? Like, I'm remembering that now. Let me go look and let your curiosity take you to the next thing. That's how we become students of the Bible is by letting our curiosity fuel and feed our study of God's word. I love that. And your passion, I'm seriously, I could listen to you talk about this for four days straight. (laughs) I love it. So I also want to hear you are the author of several Bible studies and have Fix Your Eyes coming out. So as a sister to reading your Bible, what can you give them to go alongside? Like, tell us about the book. Tell us about the Bible studies you write, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I'll tell you about my book first, because it's a little bit different than other projects I've worked on. But Fix Your Eyes is structured like a systematic theology textbook. So theology is a really big category. And so when people approach the topic of theology, we can break it down in lots of ways. There's biblical theology, which takes one theme and traces it from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And then there's systematic theology, which is basically taking one topic and saying, what does what is everything that the Bible says? about this topic and how do we then articulate or summarize or systematize everything that the Bible says about this. So it usually applies to major topics like the Trinity or Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit or the church, you know, these big topics. So systematic theology, if you crack open the the index of any systematic theology, you're going to see these major, major topics being addressed. Like who is God? That's the question of theology proper. Who is God? And then what does it mean that God's triune? What does it mean that Jesus came to earth in human form? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit dwells in believers? So all of these major topics in systematic theology are unpacked by saying, let's look at everything the Bible says about these topics and then summarize it and say, what do Christians believe? Like, what do Christians believe about the Holy Spirit? And I'm not saying 
but there isn't some disagreement on like maybe the nitty gritty details of how the spirit works in people's lives. But in general, what's some of the big picture stuff that Christians have believed throughout church history, have believed from the very beginning? So that's what systematic theology is. And if you were to Google a systematic theology textbook, the ones that you're going to find are like six or 700 pages long. They're just like these tomes, you know, they're the ones we read in Bible school and seminary. There's one that's super popular. It's called systematic theology. And I remember being assigned it in undergrad and opening it and thinking, I'm never going to make it through this. And I made it through an undergrad and like wiped my forehead and thought, okay, got through that book. And then in seminary, I was assigned to the exact same book again. And the professor said, no, I couldn't swap it out. So I had to read the whole thing again. And so most of the books are that big. They're like six, 700 pages long. But I really have this burden for people who want to study theology, but really don't have time for 700 pages, who don't have the time to go to seminary, or they don't have the desire to go to seminary, but still want to grow in their faith in that way. So I wrote Fix Your Eyes as an approachable systematic. So for the person who says, I do want to learn theology, but gosh, I just need an easier place to start. This book is written for them. So it goes through all of those major topics, like the Trinity, like Jesus Christ, like the Holy Spirit, the church, final things, those sort of things. It goes through all of these major topics and says, what does the Bible say about these topics? What do Christians believe about them? And then, of course, because this is my passion, it's going to show us in each chapter how that leads us into deeper worship of God. So knowing that God is three in one, how does that actually change my worship of God? How do I actually respond to knowing that about God? How does it shape and structure my life of discipleship? So each chapter ends with sort of these action points because theology isn't passive, it's active. It applies itself to our daily lives. So that's what Fix Your Eyes is all about. Now, I also write Bible studies. They're all digital at this point. I teach digital Bible courses is what I call them, and they're verse-by-verse studies. So kind of just doing what I've encouraged listeners to do, but taking our curiosity to the text. And my personal preference is to go very slow through a text and dig deep and see other places scripture is referencing itself. Because if we pay attention, scripture is always like referring to other stories in scripture and using words, the same word in multiple places to show us something for a purpose. And so I like to go to those different places and say, okay, here it says joy in trials. Well, we've heard that phrase joy in trials in another place. Let's go look that verse up and read the context of it because it's going to teach us something that comes to bear in the text that we're studying in front of us today. So those verse by verse studies go through books like Lamentations, and Philippians. We just finished going through Proverbs um, and talking about the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. So we go through all different kinds of books of the Bible in my verse by verse studies. I study themes like Sabbath, rest. What does it mean to rest in God? And why is it actually a part of his character? Like if we study scripture, we see that rest is actually a part of God's example that he sets for us. And so how does that apply to our daily lives? So these are some of the studies that I teach through. And my goal, I said this from the very, very beginning, the first time I hit publish on the first Bible study I wrote, my goal is to work myself out of a job. I want there to be a day that Bible students that study with me say, I think I've got this. Like I've done two or three studies with you. And not only do I know the book of Lamentations and the book of Philippians and the book of Psalms really well, because I've studied them with you, but now along the, I realize along the way I've been filling my toolbox and I think I just am going to study my Bible. Like that's my joy is when somebody writes me and says, Hey, I'm actually leaving the membership because I think I know how to do this now. 
that is my joy. So my hope is not only to impart information about the book we're studying, but also how to study the Bible and give people passion for carrying it into other books that I haven't written on. I'm never going to write through the whole Bible. I'm never going to be able to do that. And so if we're going to be students of the whole word, I've got to make my goal just to work myself out of my job. So those are the two different kinds of teaching I'm doing. My book, Fix Your Eyes, and then I also do these Bible studies. I love that. And I love your heart. I'm looking literally our bookshelf. My husband went to seminary and we have systematic theology. And you're right. It is very intimidating. I've never cracked it once myself. And I'm so thankful there is your book, Fix Your Eyes, to help regular girls like me sort through all of that. So that's awesome. Yeah, regular girls like me too. Some of us have gone to seminary and we still sort of feel like, I just, I can't crack that open. I mean, it does not fit in my bag. Like if I'm going to take something into a waiting room and pull out a book, it's just not going to be one of those big, big books. Yeah, right. so I totally Maybe I could do squats you. with it. Maybe that's... There you go. <laughs> so there you go. It's such a pleasure. We're definitely going to link your book and all of the good stuff on the show notes. But is there anything else you want to shout out? Like places you're doing fun stuff online, how they can get your online studies, all of that good stuff. Yeah, my online studies can all be found on amygannett.com. You can order the book. There's links to the book and stuff on there too. You can find Tiny Theologians at tinytheologians.shop, which is a fun resource, especially if you're looking for like Christmas gifts and stuff for the little kids in your life. Or I would say, even if you're like, hey, I want to I wanna know my Bible, but I feel really intimidated. I know a lot of adults who use Tiny Theologians materials to make theology simple for themselves. And there's no shame in that. that we should actually be really proud of ourselves when we bought the bullet and say, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what it costs, even if it costs me a little bit of pride in ordering a kid's resource to help me know him better. So um, all of those can be found on my website. And if you follow along on Instagram, I'm doing a series of giveaways, not only now preparing for the book's launch, but I'm also doing a bunch of giveaways this Christmas of resources I'm really, really excited about. So if people are like, you know, into sort of the aesthetic of Bible study, because I love a pretty Bible girl. I love a pretty Bible journal, stuff like that. If people are into that, then follow along for like some of the Christmas stuff, because I'm excited about what's coming up. I love that. You love pretty Bible studies and theology. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I mean, don't you think it should be kind of pretty? I mean, if it's the word of God, we should be like looking at it being like, gosh, they could really jazz this up. You know, I think, (laughs) I think it should be pretty. (laughs) I love that. Yes. Well, we will make sure that all of that is linked in the show notes so girls can easily get a hold of it. But Amy, I have one more question before we let you go. If you could have coffee with your 20 year old self, what would you say? I would tell myself that following Jesus into what, whatever he calls me to is totally worth it. I have never said yes to something Jesus has called me to and regretted it. Not once in my entire life. Even if it's painful in the moment, whether it's having a hard conversation with a friend, whether it's leaving a bad relationship, whether it's tithing for the first time. I remember that being very painful for me. Whether it's entering a difficult season that I knew he had me in, a season I really wanted to get out of, you know, like just waiting on the Lord. And that felt really long and really hard. Every time God has called me something to something and I have said yes, I've never regretted it once. So say yes. That reminds me even now in this season of life, when God calls you to something, say yes, because that's one way to live regret-free is when we follow God. I think you're the winner of that question. And I've asked that <laughs> to a lot of people. <laughs> you summed it up perfectly. Well, thank you so much, Amy. I can't wait to share this episode and I can't wait to stay in touch with you, all the things you're doing online. 
I really appreciate it, Katie. Thanks for having me. I'm over here giving you a virtual hug because you just finished another episode of the Truth For Your 20s podcast. Would you help a sister out and take a screenshot right wherever you're listening and share it on your social? Give me a tag at Katie Wilmer Life so I can give you a big thank you. You sharing it, you leaving your reviews on iTunes is the best possible compliment you can give. Hey, let's continue to hang out. We have a private community called Truth For Your 20s over on Facebook. So just go to groups, search Truth For Your 20s and come join the party.